0: I am Planta on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. There's a new book out, a terrific collection of stories and insights. Catherine Palmer Gordon, the book's author, gives us a look at inspiring people in the vast region of central and northern coastal British Columbia, which is the homelands of more than two dozen First Nations. It also has one of the largest remaining coastal temperate rainforests in the world. The challenges of climate change and the ongoing reckoning with colonization are discussed by the people that Catherine talks to in the stories that she has gathered in the book. It's got a great title, too. This Place is Who We Are, Stories of Indigenous Leadership, Resilience, and Connection to Homelands. She joins me now to talk about the genesis of the book, the inspiring work going on with resource management, language, environmental law, as well as healing, both physically and spiritually. We meet some fascinating people, names to watch for, as well as um, their plans for a better world, Catherine Palmer Gordon is the author of six books of nonfiction, including *We Are Born with the Songs Inside Us: Lives and Stories of First Nations People in British Columbia*. She is an award-winning freelance journalist who divides her time between Gabriola Island and Auckland, New Zealand, where she joins me from today. There will be an event for the book Saturday evening, the 17th of June, at the Bill Reid Gallery here in Vancouver. Visit uh, the event bright. Uh, website to register. This uh, book is from Harbor Publishing. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online Program, Catherine uh, Palmer Gordon. Ms. Gordon, good morning.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us. Um, how did you come to write this book?
1: The uh, incredible good luck I've had and the various work I've done and writing I've done over the years has been to spend a lot of time working with Indigenous peoples, both in Aotearoa, New Zealand, which is the accent you can hear, and um, in British Columbia and uh-huh. other parts of Canada. And I had been working in the Great Bear rainforest and visiting many of the communities uh, featured in the book uh, as part of, the course of course, that work and getting to understand a bit about Indigenous world views on conservation and well-being and human well-being and how that all fitted together. And just meet some incredible people doing amazing work. And about five years ago, it it all came together for me that these stories should be shared, not just with other people in British Columbia, but Canada and the world. You know, we're in a time of huge climate change and environmental change in the world and and resource management that is not sustainable. And here are small uh, communities of indigenous people right on our front doorstep and in British Columbia yeah. showing us how it can be done really well. And I really wanted to share those stories and also just how impressed I have been with the sheer brilliance and ingenuity of resource and people's well being management systems that have been employed by Indigenous peoples, in this case in the Great Bear Rainforest for fourteen thousand years and perhaps even longer.
0: Yeah, there are many inspiring stories in the book. Uh, but we'll get to some of them in just a sec. Dallas Smith um, is the uh, chair of Coast Funds and contributes the forward um, for the book. Um, and, and not just Smith, but but uh, his predecessors—they all encouraged you to write the book, right?
1: They did, and I'm very lucky. And, and shout out to not just Dallas, but also to uh, Merv Child, who mm-hmm. was the, the uh, chair of Coast Funds at the time I proposed we write this, you know, that I write this book and was so supportive and give a case like, I say it every time, you know, because that level of support and actually the support from Coast Funds as well as Harbor Publishing to really uh, untie my hands and support me to be able to write these stories. And for people who don't know who Coast Funds
0: Yeah, uh, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. And,
1: yeah. Uh, it's an indigenous-led conservation and Sustainable Economic Development Organization that had its roots in in the early 2000s, the outcome of the Great Bear Rainforest Agreement that um, were aimed at uh, conserving this incredible part of the world, the last temperate intact rainforest uh, in the world, the largest, I should say, um, that, you know... Supported the livelihoods and well-being of all of the First Nations communities from Haida Gwaii to Nishka territory and the Nass Valley down to uh, Wawaquam and Campbell River and and everyone in between. Mm -hmm. And uh, Coast Funds, you know, looked at this idea of telling these stories and sharing just the incredible work that some of these indigenous, all of these indigenous communities have been doing in conservation stewardship, resource management, and sustainable. Uh, economic development and said, yes, we're going to support you writing that book. So, quick opportunity for a shout out to Coast Funds and that they enabled me uh, to do this by providing me with just support, uh, moral support. Mm-hmm. Uh, they found me an anonymous sponsor. I still don't know who that sponsor was, but thank you, whoever you are, that contributed to me having the time to do the research and the interviews and the writing Uh, supported the photography. There's so many beautiful photographs in the book and also bought a 1,000 copies of the book because part of doing a book like this where you're uh, sharing or amplifying Indigenous stories is to ensure you give back. That doesn't happen anywhere near often enough, but Coast Funds is giving back in terms of the books going back to the communities and in thanks to Coast Funds for its work and all of the First Nations who participated, all of the royalties, uh, going to be donated to their conservation efforts as well, and that's how I got to be able to do the book without that level of support and confidence in the work it wouldn't have been possible and also from harbor publishing uh, supporting that work yeah. happening.
0: you, you um, illustrated just a moment ago um, the size of this area that we're talking about when we talk about the central and north northern coast of BC, um, first of all that's that's uh, more than two dozen First Nations. Um, and uh, it goes right from I guess where the the, the border with um, the Yukon and Alaska down to Campbell River is that right?
1: more or less yes yeah. the, the Mishka and the Nassau Valley go very up very far up towards the, the border Gwaii, of course there's not much north of there when, yeah. when you're going by boat and um, you know the the communities there's literally dozens of indigenous communities in both remote communities, where, you know, the Gitga'at at Hartley Bay, um, the Kirisui Hehe in Clem mm-hmm. uh in very remote boat access effectively communities to uh, communities like uh, Waiwai Kum and Campbell River, who are so surrounded by heavily commercialized industrial urban environment.
0: Yeah, it, that's the thing that strikes me in the book, because there are a number of photographs that depict um, just the beauty of the of the um, the region that we're talking about here in your book. Um, I, I would assume, not having been there, that the photos, as, as beautiful and evocative as they are, don't do justice to what it's really like up there. I mean, you've been up there, Catherine. Um, it's, it, it, I'm sure there yeah. are many times where your breath is taken away.
1: I mean, it's hard to describe, and I I can't encourage people enough to go because uh, the environment, it is breathtaking. The ocean, the mountains, the wildlife, the forest, it's just an incredibly beautiful part of the world that we need to treasure and appreciate. And then the people, you know, one of the things I write about in the book is that the people are, are shaped, if you like, and how they behave and their relationships with each other and their relationship to the land, by the land, mm. and water itself. And so the people are so reflective of that incredibly beautiful, mm. special environment and place. And, and every community I've been to there is so welcoming and warm. And, and um, I, I referred earlier to this, you know, wanting to share this, and experience that goes back in these communities 14,000 years, if you think about it I mean, these communities and their ancestors have lived in these draw lines around the map and say we're going to take this or that or, you know, this is ours and that's yours and start land wars over it. It's so completely and utterly different. It's all about relationships to the land, to the water, to each other. And that's part of what is breathtaking about this place when you understand all of that uh, intricacy of, of not just the environment but the people and how it's all one so, so absolutely-
0: yeah, so you mentioned the challenges. Obviously, I mean, we'll talk about colonization in just a sec. But but in, environmental degradation, resource extraction, I mean, that that's done a number to the land. Um, yes. Climate change, yes. obviously, the effects are keenly felt in a place like this. Um, is there is there anything that, that that leaves you hopeful as to to, to um, not just the near future, but the the the, the future itself, as to um, Say, I mean, you mentioned a moment ago fourteen thousand years. Um, yeah. You know, the, the the people there managed to survive. Um, I wonder if if um, we'll survive for say uh, another one hundred and forty years. Say, um, yeah, are are there things yeah. that are happening in terms of, of say mitigating some of the, these challenges um, posed think to the there environment? Are
1: yeah and and I would say, you know I wrote this book with hope, especially mm-hmm. after talking to everybody and hearing the stories. There's, there's so much work going on, and this is a microcosm here and and it is uh, the work that has been done here is now being replicated in other parts of the world because the system of integrated, indigenous led, conservation economies has been seen it's been in place here for 15 years and the rest of the world are picking up on it uh... uptaken in south america and africa and other parts of the world so that is great but also you know seeing these systems and sustainably. They didn't have to skimp and save and and tighten their belts, except in tough years of climate change, because climate change has been happening to them too, you know. The ice ages, tsunamis, earthquakes, and they've learned how to manage that. And if we can start to apply that more and more in non-Indigenous resource management applications, we're seeing it on Vancouver Island, we're seeing it on the coast, where the non-Indigenous partners who work with these nations are more and more aware that this is so critical. So, for example, we saw the federal government announce uh, $800 million for project finance permits which is a jargon term, but it basically reflects uh, supporting things like the Great Bear Range Conservation Clear cutting on Vancouver Island right great example there are many many good people um, are listening now to uh, our indigenous partners and their extremely wise advice on how to do this and actually enabling them to take the leadership roles in doing these for the generations yet unborn, because that's a phrase I would hear over and over again from Mm. the people I spoke with. Everything is about making sure our children and future generations are able to grow up in a healthy, sustainable environment of healthy human beings. And if we keep that focus in mind, uh, we do face another 14,000 years of not just surviving but flourishing.
0: And and this idea, though, of... um getting away from the, the colonial mindset when it comes to the management of resources and decision-making. Um, yep. th- that's slowly happening. Um, I'm wondering, can changes in government, say, um, c- can, can that be withstood? I mean, we all worry about a, a certain government coming in or a certain party coming in like or <laughs> and, and, you know, changes in, 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 in what's happening in the rest of the country. Um,
1: it is the external challenge that yeah. uh, our temporary governments tend to change very quickly, sure. uh, and so working with the permanent governments, you know the officials who are at the grassroots, you know, people who are working for BC parks, people who are working for the Ministry of Environment, people who are out there on the land and on the water at the grassroots level, usually in my experience, share this vision of sustainability and mm. taking care of where we're at. The, the trick is to convince our politicians and our elected governments to set in place a long-term future. And that's why, you know, the announcement of the $200 million set aside for the Great Bear Sea projects to start to get that work in place is so encouraging because that is a political decision. You know, I think the provincial government in BC could step up and do more, but we're actually seeing that start to happen when the Mamalilikwa Nation, uh, uh, from Village Island up the central coast, uh, declared that part of its uh, homeland to be an Indigenous Protected and Conserved Area, or IPCA is what we call that, Mm -hmm. last December. They set out a challenge to the provincial government to say, we cannot let... The incredibly special part of Huay Sound and Lowell Bay be degraded by the impacts of logging anymore. We have to protect this area. We've got some of the most rare sponges and corals in the world here that have to be protected. And um, the provincial government is stepping up, the chief John Powell tells me, the you know, the federal government is starting to step up. So there's a little bit of the just do it approach. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't depend on you know following elected governments but actually leading them into the right way to do things,
0: what about the young people catherine uh, We always hear of of uh, the young indigenous leaving the reserve and, and going south or going elsewhere for education for for making a living um, are there in in writing the book have you found many compelling reasons say for for uh, 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 the young to come back, say, and, and, and or even stay altogether.
1: Absolutely, Absolutely. You know, there's two or three different aspects to, this, to the question. You know, that is one of the challenges. It's actually the challenge for any small community is right, how do you yeah. keep the young people here? How do you give them meaningful uh, roles, whether mm-hmm. that's employment or volunteerism or just being in the community? And so part of the beauty of, uh, way of looking at conservation economies is building opportunities for the Kirisu Heihei and creating Spirit Bear Lodge, providing training and opportunities for the young people to work in the lodge, not just as uh, front of house staff or in the kitchen, but as guides, taking out the uh, visitors and guests on wildlife tours and cultural tours. As uh, just one example of that, that's been you know, really successful in the uptake, the Guardian program and and the Guardians. For people listening who don't know, the Land and Water Guardians is a national movement for um, employing Indigenous young well, and older Indigenous men and women who mm-hmm. are very knowledgeable who have all of the skills to manage everything from small boat safety because they're out on the water all the time to wildlife management to uh, environmental management. The Guardians are an increasing. They're still far too small in their numbers, but both the Hamayas Guardians based out of Vancouver Island and the Coastal First Nations Guardians uh, are increasing in numbers, and there's a fabulous training opportunity for young people to get all of these skills through Vancouver Island University, for example. with a stewardship technician training program that enables people to get qualified and go out and be employed as guardians uh, the challenge on that is long-term funding to support that. So shout out to the province here. Mm-hmm. You could be doing great things here for these guardians because it's absolutely incontrovertible that they're the ones with the most at stake to make sure the lands and water are being protected and taken care of and, and managed really well. They know it so well and they're always out there. We saw that, real-life example of that, about... Three or four weeks ago, when a full, fully laden fuel tanker slipped off a barge in Chancellor Channel off Hardwick Island, mm-hmm. and it was the Hamais Guardians uh, and the First Nations who, who are in that territory, who were uh, among the first on the scene, who managed it, who knew all the local waters, who were able to work with the Coast Guard to help Coast Guard understand local conditions and bring that tanker up effectively safely with very, very little uh, spill or damage. Without the Guardians, both the Coast Guard and the barge owner said openly, this wouldn't have have been possible. Mm. So the Guardians are a real opportunity for young people. And then the third sort of element to this that I saw, and there's a couple of stories that pick up on this, both for the um, hate the nation in uh, Balabala, who are running the Quay youth camps, where they're training the kids in every aspect of uh, culture, environmental care, medicinal plants, food gathering, uh, indigenous law, how they, all these relationships we talked about earlier, is a very, very successful program that's been going for years now where you're seeing kids who went through that come back as the teachers and they're employed there doing that work. Some of the young people who went through there, like Jamie Teagle, who's in the book, who is now running, is on H. Hey, Council is running their housing portfolio, uh, has a planning degree, is just so knowledgeable thanks to all of those opportunities that are being offered. In Haida Gwaii, the Rediscovery camps that have been running now for 40 years where the kids get an opportunity to go out in the summer for a week and just be on their homeland mm. with uh, the elders, with the teachers, with the, the guides who can help them. And that program, makes are a huge difference so these kids who you know will go into these camps and people like april churchill talks about that and his in this that story you know the kids get on the boat to go out and they're wearing the hoodies over their head and they're mumbling and they're not really helping with the bags and maybe they're smoking (laughs) and a week later you know all it takes is a week and these kids come back and their heads are held high and the hoodies are thrown back and they're saying thank you to everybody and they're saying when can we come back and you know there are stories there of so many of those kids who you know could have had not much on offer to them right. ending up instead going to university, you know, going and getting jobs in the community. And so that's why, you know, anybody who wants all of <laughs> our fellow citizens to thrive and flourish, uh, you know, encourage them to support these efforts and hold their hands up to yeah. what indigenous people are doing, because the young people are our future. Indeed. <laughs> They're the future for everybody.
0: Well, one of the things that strikes me as I'm, I'm reading, there's so many inspiring stories in the book, um, there's stories of pain as well, um, yes. is that, that your skill at listening, um, th- that comes through in the book. I don't, I don't know if you... you you probably didn't um, do that specifically, but I, I certainly read that. I mean, having talked to people over the years, I can see when that happens, even in print. Um, hmm. it's, such a, it's such a necessary skill, but but I, th- I think beyond, say, just, just writing a good book, as you have, um, it, it's um, important in these conversations that we're having in the spirit of reconciliation, isn't it?
1: Oh, I, absolutely. And listening is so important. And And listening without qualification, I would even say, is the, you know, people have good intentions and they'll sometimes say to me, you know, why do we have to spend so much time in the past? Can't we just move into the future? Um, And I understand the question, but as one person, uh, as Jesse Hempel, I think it was, who said to me in the Guasso and story, you can't actually set the table future until you clear it of the past Mm -hmm. and you know the the impacts of colonization are such that and the level of pain it's still very much happening today and it isn't all in the past and and the impacts are not just the you know i think everybody um, any rational human being would look at the residential school Indigenous peoples were treated here by colonization as terrible things. And you know, the disenfranchisement of Indigenous peoples. Everything that was done just goes on and on and on. And there is a resource section in the book uh, for people who want to learn more about that. Um, but it's it's to understand what that impact actually means today. You you can't just see Mm-hmm. Its ingenuity and all those relationship-based systems were deliberately torn apart. So many people died during the uh, smallpox epidemic that I was at a gathering recently where uh, the facilitator made the point that you know nine out of ten people died. So if you had ten people in your family, you would sit down to dinner one night and the table would be empty mm-hmm. except for you. And and when you think about that the recovery of that it isn't necessarily 100 years or, or 400 years. I mean, Indigenous people weren't even given the vote in federal elections. They weren't even treated as citizens until 1960. It hasn't been very long. Yeah. And to allow people, and in particular to allow Indigenous people to employ Indigenous ways of healing themselves and understanding that part of that is going back to that pre-colonization and to decolonize and to restore all those incredible relationship systems and the language you know we cannot underestimate the importance of language as part of well-being I you know French was my mother tongue and I didn't learn it growing up for various reasons and it still feels like a big gap in my life that I don't I'm not fluent in French. so Because language embodies so much meaning, and particularly indigenous languages have so much meaning. So uh, all of that work is still ongoing and still has to happen. But the more we support it and the more we think of it, not necessarily put labels like reconciliation on it, but Mm -hmm. uh, empowerment and respect and relationships, to, uh, you know, the beautiful Kuala, Kuala word, Mayakala, which means respect, and it's respect for all things. It's 360 degree respect, and if we employed that thinking and that worldview and how we support the work that Indigenous peoples are do- doing, I think 100 years from now things should look very different indeed, hopefully even 20 or 30 years from yeah.
0: right now. Yeah, hopefully. I was going to ask about language, Catherine. Um, you know, there, there are obviously immediate challenges in, in preventing um, a language from being lost. Um, in terms of, say, the young, uh, who, who may not have, have spoken th- their mother tongue uh, at birth, yep. are, there, are there opportunities for them to, to learn their language easily, say? Uh,
1: not easily, but yes, there are. And in different parts of BC, for example... Uh, it's easier than others. Mm. So if you're in the Saanich Peninsula and the Saanich nations have been very, very proactive on language, there's apps for the kids to use on their phones, there's uh, classes and programs for kids and adults, there's uh, an incredible program at uh, Victoria University of Victoria, there's all kinds of work going on there. The First Peoples Cultural Council supports language revitalization, and of all languages in British Columbia, and in different places it's stronger than in others. So I'm very fortunate to spend a lot of time with fluent Kuala speakers who are uh, helping um, the young people learn their languages and speak it. Uh, Clyde Talio, uh, who mm-hmm. is New Hockham in Kula, deliberately chose to do the equivalent equivalent of a university degree by spending five years learning not just the language but the cultural protocols from his elders, the equivalent of a university degree. And I'm just thrilled that last weekend the University of British Columbia conferred an honorary doctorate on him, reflecting all of his work in language as well as other things. So there are opportunities for the kids to learn um, for sure, but it's such a struggle because language you know, the, the remaining fluent language speakers in many small communities are uh, dwindling every yeah, day, of yeah. course. And the support for that is has been really, you know, the support for language learning has been really lacking, which is astonishing for me because when you look at pilot programs, even in B.C., it's shown that when a kid uh, is fluent in their mother tongue, and, it's, and you know, there's been pilot school programs in the interior where kids have been learning not just their language, but they've been doing mathematics in their language. They've mm-hmm. been doing history in their language. They've been doing everything in their language. Those kids are rock stars at everything they do, whether it's academic or right. school. But, you know, it's brilliant. Um, and, and just a couple of other very compelling statistics that I like to throw in mm-hmm. about language and why we should support it. Because people will say... Well, only a few people speak it. Why should we?
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, why is it worth it? Well, here's why it's worth it, apart from what I just said, is that when people are fluent in their mother tongue, they're just healthier, more confident, more whole human beings. Um, Let's look at Papua New Guinea, where they have something like 328 different languages, where you can go to school in your own language from K to 12. And if Papua New Guinea can do it, why can't we? So that's one. And secondly, if you want a business case for it, if you're a taxpayer saying, why should my taxes go on indigenous language revitalization? Here is what uh, academics from one of the eastern universities discovered when they did a very, very good thorough study of costs related to language revitalization. It is cheaper to do one-on-one mother tongue language with a child from K to 12 to the age of 18, one-on-one, one, on one, one mm-hmm. teacher, one child, it's cheaper to do that than to put that child in prison for one year as an adult. Wow. Now, we know that yeah. kids who are fluent in their mother tongue go on to do so much better in life and are far less likely to fall among the negative statistics oh. that we like to think so predominant around health, well-being, incarceration, and all of those, lack of graduation, all of those things. So to me, that says it all. Let's support language.
0: Yeah, and um, there's another uh, great story in the book where um, I'll end on this, Catherine. Um, uh, We in the so-called West, uh, you know, focus on the three R's. Um, and and An elder told you that that, um, we should learn the three L's. Looking, listening, and loving. And I can't help but think that it's a great way to look at life itself.
1: Oh, it is. And that was at least Pauline Waterfall, who is such a remarkable human being. And I was so honored to uh, have some conversations with Pauline. And it, it really is true. Looking, listening, loving. Wouldn't that be something Yeah, that would be a great way to approach everything we do? And it doesn't mean we're not... Uh, apply, we can apply that approach to engineering, to medicine, to uh, mathematics, because we want all of those great skills in our world as well, but that approach to it instead of just the learning to actually care about what you're doing for other people and the environment and make the world a better place would be so great.
0: Yeah, and uh, by the way, um, the... um as I mentioned earlier, the, the books full of inspiring stories, but inspiring people. You mentioned Clyde Talio a moment ago. Um, mm. You know, th- there's someone to watch. Um, Mercedes yes. Robinson Neslos, um another yes. inspiring young person. Someone to, to someone to, to pay attention to, right?
1: Absolutely. I I, I know that I'm going to be an old lady in my rocking chair, going, I know, I knew them when they were kids, would <laughs> be extremely extremely proud of them I'm actually hoping that I don't think it's going to be Mercedes it might be Clyde but unfortunately but June 17th I'm just going to yeah. we've got an event to celebrate the book at the Bill Reid Gallery in Vancouver uh, you know people can register on the Eventbrite website for that if they'd like to come it's in the evening and you know we are going to have some of the people from the book there to be talking and speaking the book's not about me it's about them. And so it's going to be a lovely evening with some of these people and an opportunity to meet them face-to-face and hear from them directly as well.
0: Catherine, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I so appreciate you taking the time to chat. This is a a great book, and you've done a marvelous service. Congratulations and continued good luck with it.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Joan. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate that.
0: The event is Saturday evening, the 17th of June, at the Bill Reed Gallery, uh, you can go online, uh, uh, visit Harbour Publishing's uh, website, and uh, there should be a link there for the event, bright, um, and how to register for that. The book is called "This Place Is Who We Are: Stories of Indigenous Leadership, Resilience, and Connection to Land, Homelands." It's from Harbour Publishing. Its author, Catherine Palmer Gordon, joined me on the line from Auckland, New Zealand, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planter.